Welcome, everybody, to episode 33, Skin Repair. I am Dr. Christopher Vassano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett. And this is the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. Dr. Gannett, my man, what's going on, Yos? I'm good, good. How was your Thanksgiving? Good? Very good. Very thankful. Um, I'm very thankful now, especially all the stuff I see in the news. I'm thankful to be alive and walking down the street. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I heard they had some uh, protests up in Albany. uh, uh, Man, I could. It took me an hour to get like 15 minutes here last night with all the protests going on. I I watched the news because I was watching the lighting of the tree, uh, which is very like old man thing to do on TV. (laughs) And uh, I saw like they were really the protesters really trying to get to the tree. Did you see things going on in New York? Uh, there was a little action in Grand Central, but my hours are so weird these days that I think I somehow missed a lot of it. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, this is not a, obviously a pol- uh, political podcast, but, uh, there's been a lot of stuff in the news that, uh, in America's race relations and, uh, it's kind of overwhelming, uh, especially now that it's in New York as well. So anyhow, uh, that title skin, skin repair, that's, uh, who's our guest for today? We got uh, yeah, we got a great guest. We got a uh, really an uh, really uh, kind of a stem cell, a younger stem cell rock star, Dr. Marius Warnig from Stanford, who's uh, has a really awesome pedigree. You've known him from you know when he worked in the Bristol lab, he's worked in the Yanish lab, and now he has his own lab, and he's really done a lot of work reprogramming and he he's really done a lot of work with those INs those induced neurons you can make neurons directly from skin and so now he he published a bunch of papers recently uh, but is the paper we'll talk about talk about the most is using uh, IPS technology to model a skin disease um, and correct it using uh, cool technology so we're excited to have him come on the show and and give us his uh, his update on, on on how his stem cell world is going yeah maybe for his where the, where's the beef question he'll say uh, skin repair some different maybe yeah maybe not something other than the eye yeah <laughs> So, uh, um, that's cool. so yeah, so we are uh, we are the Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of the ISSCR, the International Society for Stem Cell Research. I think, Yost, the registration for the uh, uh, the annual meeting will come on board very soon. Um, so uh, keep an eye out. We'll update you on the next show. Uh, it'll probably be live, and we'll give you the information how you can go register. Yosef and I will be there. The podcast will be broadcasting live from the middle of the floor. Um, live, interviews. Checking, uh, checking, live interviews. Live yeah, interviews. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do a lot. We're going to bang it out. We're going to have a better... Uh, We'll have more bandwidth this year, so we'll be able to uh, to get more interviews. And yeah, I was just checking it out. There are some discounts, flight airfare discounts available if you're registered for the meeting. So uh, no excuses, everyone. Get out to Europe and go to ISSCR for the meeting. It's an awesome time for science and for fun. Uh, Yosef and I will have both for sure. Mm. Um, and so get after us on all of our ways to do so, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, at stem cell podcast, stem cell podcast at gmail.com. Like us on uh, at Facebook. Um, you can go online, stem cell podcast.com. We, we had the, our first, uh, person that we gave a, a free t-shirt to. Um, so everybody go to stem cell podcast.com and enter your name and email address into the, uh, the box right on the homepage. Um, we can, we'll send you information about the show, uh, about the papers you talk about and, uh, you automatically get answered to win a free stem cell podcast t-shirt, which I love and I wear all the time. Yeah, and we don't sell your email addresses like some of those other sites. So uh, we try to keep it not, you know, maybe once a week we'll send something out, right? It's it's not. Yeah, yeah we don't. We gonna... won't, yeah, we won't. Not even. We we won't send. Yeah, it's really just for for you know. It's I would I I would love it because 
and my grad students because we send you the links to the papers, so it's like a way to get your cliff notes. Uh, so uh, uh, everyone go out there and sign up uh, and, and just stay more connected to the podcast and to the industry. Um, so I think uh, with that, because we got Marius – Coming up in a little bit, you also want to go through some papers. I think it, we get into the uh, science roundup brought to you by Thermo Fisher. Um, you can go to the stem cell podcast.com and uh, they have uh, a banner right there uh, where you can go and click and get access to the 24 hour stem cell event for all their speakers. It's still there and it's archived. You can listen to all the information and, and, uh, and check out our talks and all the other stem cell scientists' talks and hear about what's going on. So please go there, click the banner, and check it out. You can also go to their website. Uh, and use their products because I'm sure most of you do anyway because I know everyone uh, that I talk to uh, is using their products. So uh, thank you for them. And uh, Yos, my man, you want to kick it off? All right. So there was a PLOS One study uh, using fMRI, functional magnetic, uh, what is it, resonance Im- imaging on the yeah, brain yeah. Uh, to predict autism diagnoses with a 97% accuracy. So what the scientists did is they detect changes in the way certain concepts are represented in the brains of autistic individuals or what they called uh, thought markers. So uh, what was really uh, unique was the way their brains activate when they think of social concepts like persuade or adore or hug. So uh, in control participants, the thoughts uh, indicate a representation of self, which manifested in the brain's posterior midline regions. So this self-activation, like the thought of self, uh, was nearly absent in autistic uh, patients. So, uh, 97% accuracy. That's pretty good. Wow. So, yeah. Impressive. I know that's you're awesome. into the, uh, autism. What, what journal is that? I know you'll put the link up. Do you know the journal offhand? PLOS, uh, P-Loss. public cool, library man. of science plus one. We got to nice. figure out what that one stands for. It's not like care. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. Uh, There's no plus two. I know that. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a, what's our favorite journal? Although, although Shane Graylish out there, he sent us a link to a new possible favorite journal. We'll get, we'll stay tuned for that. Sorry. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> the public, uh, what is it? The proceedings, uh, proceedings of the National of the Academy National, of Sciences yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, study showing use they use radiocarbon dating uh, to show that mastodons, you know, those huge elephant. Oh yeah, creatures, man. Uh, they they uh, found that. They were mostly gone uh, 75,000 years ago, and therefore it was thought previously that humans had killed them off uh, in North America. And basically, that they were since they were mostly gone 75,000 years ago, and humans didn't move into North America until 25,000 years ago, it's unclear right now as to what killed them off. So you can find that over in PNAS. Uh, there's another PNAS study indicating that the rapid evolution of HIV is slowing uh, the virus's ability to cause AIDS. So essentially, it's becoming less virulent over t- as it's evolving because of uh, widespread use of antiretroviral therapy. And the virus has uh, evolved to adapt to uh, mutants that have uh, variants in people that have this HLA-B HLA B star 57 variant um which these people are known to be more resistant to aids progression so this adaptation is driving down the virulence of transmitted hiv and uh the most effective immune responses essentially comes at a cost uh for the the virus's ability to replicate so i I find it 
interesting that like the virus is becoming it's sort of ev- co-evolving with us uh and wow yeah and it's becoming less virulent so uh you find that over in penis uh there's a nature study showing uh the difference between human and mouse radioglia i did you see this i saw that man. Uh, arnold. Saw by, by arnold yeah yeah, yeah yeah big krigstein over there uh in california so he and another colleague showed that um they looked at human gestational week uh, 14.5 versus mouse embryonic days 14. And they found a major difference in a gene called PDGF. Uh, that's the, what is that? The prostaglandin, uh, prostag- uh, derived growth factor, one of those. Anyhow, uh, D. So PGFD, uh, the inhibition of the receptor, uh, PDGFR beta in slice culture uh, prevents normal cell cycling in human, but not mouse. So this is a human-specific gene. And when they injected recombinant PDGFD uh, in developing mouse brains, they found uh, an increased proportion of radioglia. But ironically, the the mice weren't like so humanized. I think they had a defect because of the increase in the radioglia. So, but this appears to be like, you know, how important radioglia are for in development and considering that the brain for a human is a thousand times the size of a mouse uh, brain. It's, it's a uh, pretty interesting that this gene may be uh, part one of the major players as to why the, the brain is so different. Yeah, it was very cool. PDGF is a platelet-derived growth factor. <clears throat> platelet-derived. Okay, I was getting it confused with the prostaglandins uh, just because it sounded right. <laughs> uh, there Sounds was a, right. Yeah, there was a PNAS study of H. pylori. We talked about this before with gastric ulcers and uh, yep. cancer. Uh, so you talked about how that guy basically got the Nobel Prize drank the drank bacteria the H. Pylori, uh, yeah. to show that it could caused ulcers but uh he found uh not he uh this in this study they found a nanoparticle that contains linolenic acid uh, which is in vegetable oil uh that can combat the bacteria that bacteria better than today's uh standard treatment they call it lipo lla or lipola It, Lipola? Yeah, it fuses uh, with the bacterial membrane and disrupts it and then uh, kills it, essentially. So, uh, And w- was not toxic to the mice. So pretty cool thing. A little veg- cool. vegetable oil extract. See, um, vegetable oil can be good for you. Exactly, exactly. Uh, let's see here. JCI, they had a biomarker that strongly associates with triple negative breast cancer uh, with this highly aggressive carcinoma. The gene is called RASL2 and is downstream of a lost microRNA in these cancers and is therefore upregulated as microRNAs tend to decrease uh, expression of genes. Uh, So increased RASL2 correlated with lower survival rates. So you can find that in JCI. Uh, There was a Nature uh, article describing an invisible barrier for our planet that is located within the Van Allen radiation belts. These two donut-shaped rings around our planet that extend up to 40,000 kilometers above the Earth. Uh, The inner zone is full of high-energy protons, whereas the outer zone is dominated by high-energy electrons. The data revealed a sharp boundary at uh, the very edge of the inner 
edge of the outer belt. <laughs> so that appeared to be deflecting incoming highly charged electrons called ultra relativistic electrons. Uh, mm-hmm. These particles rise around the Earth at near light speed, traveling at approximately 160,000 kilometers per second. So another... Damn. Yeah, they just found this like protective... Sh- like, There's a lot of rings and belts in space, I feel I like. I know, and they all protect us from like, you know, hell, death from above. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a translational psychiatry study that found a deficiency in monk MU... NC, not K, M-U-N-C, Monk 18-1 in mice led to behavioral uh, features that are similar to autism, uh, including lack of sociability and interest in other mice. So the gene helps to release neurotransmitter chemicals across synaptic uh, connections and also uh, has a connection with another autism gene you're probably familiar with, Neurolegin one, so yep. you can find that in translational psychiatry. Cool. Uh, another PNAS study showing that Chinese adopt uh, children of Chinese descent that were adopted in Canada, primarily uh, women, because of the whole you know one child policy over there, uh, still recognize the Chinese language sounds decades later, like uh, bilingual speakers do in their left hemisphere. Versus, uh, they looked at French adoptees and exposed them to the Chinese language, and it was on their right hemisphere, the way they process the sound. So there's sort of the speech memory that stays with you, even though you don't speak the language. And uh, it's kind of really important with the Chinese language, because I think like the difference between horse and ma's mom is how you say ma. It's like ma, ma. Like (laughs) It's really important, the intonations, and they're still able to remember this. Um, So you can find that in PNAS. I thought that was cool. Did you see this? Have you heard this new thing called Venture Philanthropy uh, with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation? They essentially like don't uh, they uh, gave a hundred million to a small biotech to make this cystic fibrosis drug, and they basically did it. And the treatment cost three hundred grand a year, and in the the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation got a three point three billion dollar payout. They took what? the yeah, so it's sort of like this new model that I just wanted to bring up. I thought it was in the news. I and, didn't know anything about yeah, that. That's man. cool. I'll yeah, check on that link. I want to read that. Yeah, man. so they're calling it venture philanthropy. Um, real quick, I'm going to bust a few couple real quick in the last minute. Uh, PLOS one study showing the benefits to DNA based dietary advice. Uh, so they basically told people that if they had like a gene, uh, variant related to salt intake and high blood pressure, uh, people listened to their gene variant and, uh, it's bolstering this new field of nutri, nutrigenomics. So, uh, you can find that PLOS one. And then, uh, there was a nature communication study using multivariate pattern analysis of brain scans when people are rejected is similar, but a little bit different from when people receive a painful heat stimulus. So when people reject you, it hurts like if you're being burned, (laughs) essentially the way the brain, yeah, yeah. The way the brain processes emotional pain is similar to, um, uh, physical pain so see that's so cool because for anyone out there that's you know goes through emotional problems man it's sometimes it feels like it actually hurts yeah yeah so on that you know i'll leave it at that since uh it's kind of timely with uh the news and all so uh wow, yeah, man that's very that's, cool that's cool that's man thank you yep let me dive into some of the uh 
stem cell things. I'll start off with just this thing that will affect stem cell uh, trials and all trials. There was the uh, proposal um, um, that was proposed a couple days on November 19th that this is a release that came out. It was in Science Mag. This proposed rules will vastly expand trove of clinical trial data reported in the U.S. database. So, you know, there's a ton of clinical data drug companies have to share with the public, uh, um, yeah, well, I should say they they share stuff with the public, right? However, this regulation will now uh, basically expand on what they have to release to the public. So basically, trial sponsors would clinical trial sponsors would need to report summary results for drugs and devices that are never approved, and not just for the products that reach the market. So you know there are there are patients and people that do these randomized trials all the time, and then the drug never goes to market. And they never get any information as to why or what happened. And so now this new proposal will uh, aim to let people know in the country and the public know uh, what happened to those drugs in their trials and what was good and what was bad and why they never made it to the market. That's cool. Um, so that's the FDA doing this? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think that this is the new goal. It's released by the U.S. Department of Health uh, Human Services. And I think, you know, more transparency is, is good. Um, you need to, you know, if you're going to have, if you're going to ask people to go into trials and then that never makes it, they should know the reasons as to why. And the public who pays taxes to fund the discoveries for those they should un- be able to get that data so i i think that's i think that's good it's so only it's like a proposal a, so so it's we'll like see, a we'll, journal we'll see of negative data for clinical trials yeah and we'll cool. see we'll see if it goes through again it's just a proposal all right so uh this is really cool man so uh, this is this is this kind of caught my eye and the, the title was the lab grown penis approaching a medical I saw, milestone i saw that yeah did you what? see it so I, this is this is this is guy is so cool dr anthony atala um he's like the bioengineering guru yeah um and they talked about like the uh, lab grown vagina i remember that was recently came out and so they've been working on um uh, uh basically re- making re- be able to create a, uh, a penis that they call the phallus um in the dish for uh for diseases for you know cancer you know uh, erectile dysfunction and things like this and um they had this report uh, I think in 2008, where they 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 used it concept in 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 rabbits, and so they were um you know the rabbits were able to that they were had it they were able to uh, have sex and and this says let's see um uh let's see out of twelve of the rabbits eight there was proof of ejaculation which if you think about Yosef is crazy that yeah. you can actually hook it all up right because there's a lot of wiring and, yeah. and circuitry involved there that it's not only not only actually is has the phallus but it actually is functional which is incredible um and, and he's, so he's they, also they did, doing the vagina as well right well yeah this yep. sounds weird to say that but he did they made, did the bladder um the vagina and yes. now the the penis so wow. and he's a urological surgeon which is why he's dealing in these uh you know um kind of area and organs if you will mm. um so this is how they do it. This is kind of crazy. I was thinking about it. Um, like, how the heck do they do this? They get like this donor. They get a donor penis, and they they put it in detergent, and it, it basically gets rid of all of the donor cells, but keeps the scaffold. Yeah. Because you yeah. know the penis is just very like cart, cart like the ca- it? Cartila- cartilaginous. I don't know how you say that word. You know cartilage. What I mean? basically yeah. Cartilage, right? And so then what they do is they seed they seed the structure. 
with the donor with the with the patient's actual cells mm. and they regrow it in the lab so the patient cells actually grow over the shape and that that's how they create it and then they surgically uh put it on and hook up the nerves and everything nice. like that and so um they're getting closer to it um and uh, they, they're really hopeful. It's been 20 years they've been working on this, and uh, they, they just had this real this update on it. And I found it to be very interesting, and because it's one of these organs that it's it's you know has to be functional when you need it to be functional, yeah. and when it's not. I mean, I was reading some of the things that they've done to um uh to they've used in the past where like you have need a pump, you know, where you have to like pump it up if you want to use it, which is obviously annoying, or there are some that use like a, a, a actual rod, but the rod doesn't actually obviously ever get soft. So you can be walking around with this thing and it's obviously very uncomfortable. So, so for people who need this, there's, there's no real good solution. And so they're really getting closer to a, a lab grown penis that can help many men out there. So no, it's, uh, uh, we, we, it's, it's hard not to make like jokes, but these are actually serious conditions. Sure. That, oh like, yeah, exactly. You know, I know that's exactly right. So Anthony Atala <laughs> added again. Uh, so that was cool. This, uh, came out of the journal of nucleic acid research. I love this journal. It's very hardcore, like, right? uh, nucleic acid stuff. Um, multi-kilobase homozygous targeted gene replacement in human IPS cells. So, you know, we've talked about Talon and CRISPR for, sequence-specific and those sequence-specific nucleases that have been used so far to kind of disrupt or correct, insert transgenes, precise locations in the genome. So they've now demonstrated an efficient knock-in targeted replacement of multi-kilobase genes in human IPS. So in, they, in this example, they do, let's see, a 2.7 KB kilobase homozygous gene replacement was achieved in up to 11% of IPS without selection. Um, so I thought that was very cool. Um, uh, it's very technical, but you can check that out. Nucleic acid research. Uh, let's see here. What do I got? This was out of Science, Science Express. It's up. This is out of the lab of Vivian Tabar, who we know well from yep. Sloan Kettering. Yep. Uh, she's a uh, um, neurosurgeon and studies uh, in the lab uh, glioma. And so this title of the paper is The Use of Human Embryonic Stem Cells to Model Pediatric Gliomas with an, with an H33K27-methylhistone mutation. So it says here like over 70% of, uh, you know, these pediatric gliomas, uh, of diffuse uh, pediatric gliomas, which are very aggressive, uh, harbor heterozygous mutations that create this kind of amino acid substitution at this histone. And so they, uh, they show that um, they can kind of use... Uh, human embryonic stem cell to model the tumor uh, in the dish by kind of recreating that. Yeah. And this is really cool because this is really the first that I know, and I'm not in this field very well, but to model a, uh, an actual glioma in the human system is very difficult. And uh, to propagate human gliomas from patient samples is very difficult. So this might offer a more amenable platform to screen drugs on probably some of the most aggressive tumors around uh, gliomas. So congrats to Vivian yeah, and, and Kosuke. Uh, uh, he's uh, he did a lot of work, great work in that paper, and yep. uh, you know they're really in a unique position. She's a neurosurgeon, Vivian, and uh, she's got some talented uh, cell culture people, and it, uh, it's it's a cool model. You know, not many people have access to that tissue and then can propagate it. You know, so right, and they can compare and, and do a lot of things to the in vivo samples, which is obviously really key. So. She's been doing that for a while, and so congrats to, congrats to her lab. Um, this was in 
um, this this jur- this journal that's called cir- circulation or something like that. It says derivation and high engraftment of patient specific cardiomyocyte sheets using induced IPS. Uh, cells generated from adult cardiac fibroblasts. So it's really, it's really just what the title says. They, they, they make uh, IPS. They take IPS cells. They derive these cardiac sheets, and uh, they can show that in transplantation, as uh, for acute myocardial infarction, has a, a good benefit. So you can check that out. Um, trying to span all areas of stem cell biology. This is a really cool paper. I don't know if you saw it in the. Stem cell reports out of the lab of Ellie Tanaka, which is the 3D reconstitution of the pattern neural tube from embryonic stem I saw cells. That. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So they, basically, they made like an in vitro spinal cord. Spinal they cord. made like a yeah. yeah, like a spinal cord in the dish. Um, um, so they used, um, you know, this is mouse ES cells, and they did a neural induction in matrix gel, and they they yield these 3D uh, neuroepithelial cysts. Um, and uh, they go through this protocol, and you can read about the protocol. I won't go through it in detail. Some sonic, and, sonic hedgehog. Involved. Yeah, a little yeah. sonic in there. Um, they do. Uh, they get to the floor plate, um, and they beautiful. The, the images in it are really beautiful. So I encourage you to go check it out. They make like this really beautiful in vitro spinal cord. Uh, the Ellie Tanaka the Tanaka Lab is great. So they do great work. You should go check that out. Stell stem cell reports. Um, this is also, I believe, yeah, stem cell reports. Out of the the lab of Akitsu Hota, um, let's see here. Um, it says precise correction of the dystrophin gene in Duchenne muscular dystrophy patient induced pluripotent stem cells by Talon and CRISPR Cas9. So um, there is a technology is getting the Nobel Prize soon. It's, it's who that technology is going to get the Nobel Prize. I know, soon. It's, I know, it's I like know. And Shinya, Shinya Yamanaka is also on this line here. Yeah, I mean for sure, man. This 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 thing is crazy. Which it's like. It, it's, it's a you game just changer. change things, yeah, you know, it's like a game literally changer. game changer, literally. Um, so a DMD to Shane muscular dystrophy is like a severe muscular degenerative disease and it's caused by this mutation in dystrophin gene. Mm. So, um, they, um, basically you can correct that I'm assuming, right. But the safety of these nucleus treatments must be determined. So they used, they identified a unique target region for the reduced off target sites, um, and to restore the dystrophin protein, they performed three. They did three different correction methods, which I thought was cool. They did like exon nice. skipping, frame shifting, and exon knock in. Nice in these in these IPS lines, and they found that the knock in strategy was the most effective. Mm. And then they looked at the genome integrity and all that stuff, and found it was okay. And then they differentiated the cells with the correction towards skeletal muscle and showed that they you know successfully detected the expression of full length dystrophin protein. So. Uh, they were able to kind of correct some of the stuff, and they did a very thorough characterization of the methodology to show that the off-target effects were not bad. So, nice, very cool paper. Stem cell reports. Um, let's see here. How am I doing on time? We got a we're, couple we're, minutes, so one minute and a half. Let me. There's a stem cell reports. Early depletion of primordial germ cells in zebrafish promotes testes formation. Cells in zebrafish, obviously. So they explored the relationship between primordial germ cell number and sexual development. And their results show that there's a dimorphic, which means difference between male and female, like sexual dimorphism in the same species. Um, uh, So um, in the early larvae of the fish, marking the beginning of sexual differentiation, they applied – they use morpholinos still in zebrafish, which I think are cool. Morpholinos is a way to knock down genes. Um, And they demonstrate that a threshold number of these PGCs is required for the stability of ovarian fate. Um, okay, so then if you can manipulate that, then you can kind of 
transform and push things towards testicular differentiation. Um, and so this is just trying to understand the biology of gonadal formation, which is important, obviously. We're, I know we're trying to make sperm and things like this. Um, and so this is just another step towards trying to understand the difference in how the testes uh, and the ovaries are formed very early, early on. So this is a very cool paper, Stem Cell Reports. Check that out. Um, and then I think, Yos, I'll probably stop here. Um, we're going to talk to Marius uh, in a minute. Uh, so let's just end here. I was going to talk about his, uh, the next paper I clicked on was his paper that we're going to talk about. So let's just end it here. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest then? Okay, so uh, our guest is a, uh, is a is a very well-known stem cell scientist I've been following now for some time, a uh, big fan of his work. So uh, it's great to bring on uh, Dr. Marius Wernig, uh, Associate Professor of the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University School of Medicine, which I'm sure is a lot warmer over there than it is here today. Um, Dr. Wernig and his team... Um, um, amongst other discoveries, but has discovered that the human skin cells can be converted directly into functional neurons. We know those IN cells well, Yosef, in, in a period of four to five weeks with just addition of uh, some proteins there. And at Stanford, um, he's focused on using IPS cells or induced pluripotent stem cells and these IN, these induced neural cells, for disease modeling purposes um, for potential cellular therapies. And for his work, he's been awarded numerous prizes, including the ISSCR, the International Society for Stem Cell Research, Outstanding Young Investigator Award, and most recently, the New York Stem Cell Foundation's Robertson Stem Cell Prize. So, um, Maris, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing perfectly fine. How are you? Doing, doing well. Congrats on the papers. There's been, there's been a bunch coming out, and they're great. And we're going to get to the paper in, um, you know, we're going to focus a little bit on the paper from in Science and Translational Medicine. But before we go there, why don't we start um, for people that m- might not be familiar directly with your work and just introduce yourself as a stem cell scientist. Let people know how you got into stem cell research and um, we'll kind of take it from there into your lab currently. Sure. Got the stem cell kick, if you want, uh, when Dolly the Sheep was cloned. Hmm. Uh, I was a medical student then in Germany. I actually was uh, uh, working on my thesis uh, in Munich and then uh, this paper came out and was, of course, you know, a huge splash as people of our age can maybe remember, mm-hmm. maybe not all the listeners, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was it was obviously a big thing. And then um, together with the uh, discovery of, of human ES cells, just a little later, uh, this was exactly the time when it sort of started my uh, residency, um, you know, putting these two things together really blew my mind. And I thought, well, this, this really has great potential. And, uh, you know, some, I want to say, more than a decade later, <laughs> unfortunately, time is flying, uh, <laughs> we are, you know, we have made some nice progress and uh, our, was actually able to contribute some, some, something that, that made you new know, things um, better and, and, and maybe also closer to the clinic. I'm sure we will talk about more. We talk talk about our, our recent science translation management paper. Yeah, but that's that's how it got me into this. I, I as I said, I was um, uh, doing a residency in neuropathology, and um, luckily, uh, you know, in the, the um, places um, where I could go were not not that many, um, and that place where I ended up uh, it was in Bonn, Germany. There was um, um, somebody who 
just returned from his postdoc from Ron McKay's lab. His name is Oliver Brüstler, and he actually was at this exact same neuropathology institute where I did my residency. So I was doing research with him, and he, he sort of brought the, um, at that time, mouse embryonic stem cell and embryonic stem cell differentiation protocols to, to this, uh, or started his own lab there, and sort of became his lab member. And that's really when I first worked with embryonic stem cells and, and, uh, and learned about, you know, neural differentiation, neural stem cells, and, and all this other stuff. Nice. Yeah, Look at that, Ron Mackay. Ron Mackay is still like the granddaddy over here. <laughs> His yeah. pedigree is. So I didn't know Oliver was with Ron. He was with Ron. I didn't know that. Yeah, him yes, and uh, Lorenz did their postdocs together, I believe. Oh, and, and oh that's Mackay's right. Lab. I remember yeah. Lorenz telling me that. That's right. I grew up yeah. on a lot of Oliver's work. I, I mean, I learned a lot uh, from the uh, from his work. Uh, really, really great. And then from there, Marius, is that when you went uh, after that on over to Rudy's lab? Is that is that the transition there? That's right. After I did my residency, after four years, I think, I uh, moved to Boston to go to Rovinish's lab. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone out in the stem cell world is familiar with that name, uh, uh, Dr. Yanish, of course. And then you, you there were looking into reprogramming. Is this the idea? We're studying pluripotency and reprogramming? Yes. Uh, when, when I mean, I, when, amongst other things, I'm sure. When I came to the lab, when I joined the lab, it was still the times of the nuclear transfer uh, excitement, but it was a little bit over. So it was um, the next big thing, obviously, was to try to find the right factors to to mimic what the oocyte can do in in vitro right, right. and uh, so probably everybody in the lab at the time had some sort of side project to um try to make what we now know <laughs> called, are called ips cells uh, but at the same time everybody knew this is you know who knows could be easy could be very very difficult could right. be impossible so it was not um everybody's main project i would say (laughs) but we you know we as as a group we i think we um we were on the right track and shinya yamanaka of course was faster and it was of course super exciting when his paper came out but because we had you know worked on this since years and we had all the tools in place we probably would have gotten there too i mean it's hard to say in respect uh, because we it happened differently but uh, we had all the tools in place so we Actually, even all the four factors we had already flying around in the lab. So it was very easy for us to just reproduce uh, Shinya's work. And uh, and then actually we saw when we changed a little bit the selection strategies, we, we could actually get much better IPS cells or IPS cells that had much more similar to ES cells than what he had initially described. So that... Um, Ended up in a in a big paper <laughs> pretty quickly. It was quite amazing, and from from then on, it was of course lots of uh, uh, interesting stuff to uh, look into the into the iPS cell biology. And at some point, then I think after two or three years, I, I um, came here to Stanford. And so, was it at that? Was it the thinking of just with reprogramming? I, I, if you're thinking about it like abstract. You know, just thinking about it abstractly, you know, you can program something to do something, right? I mean, that's the real overview. You can, if you find the right cocktail, the right program, you can program something to turn into something else. Did you, you moved on then. So this was an IPS cell, right? And we know people, you know, for everyone out there, you make induced pluripotent stem cells, IPS cells, to make them differentiate into certain cell types. So was it your thinking then that why don't we just try to directly program the cell into the cell type we want rather than having to go through the intermediate? Is that, is that, I mean, is that what you were thinking as you were 
the whole IN hypothesis was coming on board. That's exactly right. So um, the Yamanaka experiment was you know, a, a huge um, discovery, of course, with great impact on, on, on all our field. But what really it, I thought it told us that when you just pick the right transcription factors and, and the combination thereof, which is important because previously people have always um, sort of were, were sort of how shall I how shall I put it? They were um, of course really excited by this myoD experiment, and which was shown to um, um, so myoD was shown in in the late eighties to convert fibroblasts to muscle cells. Right. And ever since, actually, people have looked for similar transcription factors, single sort of master transcription factors that could, could do the same job for other lineages, and people have failed. And uh, one of the important conclusions that, that Shinya's uh, work really um, brought to us was that, well, maybe sometimes you need more than one factor, but then it works pretty much the same. But just one factor is not enough. And, uh, of course, it's it's difficult to find the right combinations to this day of transcription factors. But um, if you can turn a fibroblast into an IPS cells with just four transcription factors, you would think, well, maybe if you can do a similar approach and um, uh, find other transcription factors that could uh, move or, or um, transform fibroblasts into anything else, such as another somatic cell type, such as, such as neurons, um, that could be be possible. Uh, of course, you people at the time weren't quite sure. You know, had, had never been shown before. Only very closely related lineages have been shown before. Um, and iPS cells induced pluripotent stem cells are, of course, a very unique cell type. In a sense, they are very early uh, primitive cells. And when you reprogram a fibroblast and somatic cell to an iPS cell, it sort of uh, can, can envision that the cell. All it sort of has to do is going backwards in time, right? The, the, the history of an iPS cell is in every somatic cell. So people have argued there's something unique about iPS cell reprogramming, whereas when you try to convert a skin cell directly into a neuron, you know, that has never been the cell. The cell has not no no memory of it. Right. It doesn't know. It doesn't hasn't hasn't gone there yet. So exactly. it doesn't, right. it's a completely okay. new path. So that's why people thought, well, you're a little crazy. You know, it really can't be can be accomplished. But, you know, I thought, let's go in and try to find a target and just try to induce um, a program that these transcription factors are usually doing, which is, in this case, a pluripotent uh, program or pluripotency of transcription network. Why not uh, try to do the same thing with another set of transcription factors that define another lineage, such as as neurons? So that was the hypothesis. And it really came out of the, you know, for us at least, um, out of Shinya Yamanaka's work. And that's that uh, mm-hmm. two, 2011 uh, Nature paper using MASH1 and BRAIN2 and what's the third factor? Uh, MIT- MASH1, BRAIN2 and MIT1 leg. Yes. It actually was uh, 2010. We, um, I started my lab in uh, September 2008 hmm. and by Christmas 2009 we got the acceptance from Nature that it's, oh, it's nice. in. So there was... That's a, very, a very nice Christmas. That's present. a nice Christmas present <laughs> right at the holiday season for everybody. That's so, a nice uh, Christmas present. To have. It's literally the twenty third. 
So I have to admit, when uh, when IN first came out, I was a little skeptical, mainly because of the scalability issues. Um, say using skin to convert to make dopamine neurons, uh, it didn't seem like there was an advantage to, if you will, jump the shark and going directly from skin to neurons instead of going back to a pluripotent state. But then I guess uh, I forgot who it was. I had a conversation. I think it was with Lorenz where he was saying, you know that. By having the old neurons, there's actually a benefit to having to not resetting cellular age and going back to the pluripotent stage. And obviously, scalability issues will be addressed over time uh, with increased efficiency of IN. But uh, is that the main, uh, I guess, advantage of not going back to the pluripotent state? <clears throat> well, um, I agree with you. I mean, scalability is, of course, an, an, an issue, and, and IPS cell reprogramming uh, strategies have a huge advantage in this in this case because you know the job of an IPS cell is essentially to grow, mm. Uh, mm. whereas the job of a post-mitotic neuron is to stay put, to not <laughs> grow, <laughs> to anything to not grow. <laughs> so you know the advantage, uh, of course, in 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 cell or more like directed lineage conversion approaches is that you don't deal with this very aggressively growing pluripotent stem cells. So like the risk of tumor formation is, of course, much, much lower. Mm. Uh, if you have a contamination of something that didn't quite um, make it so well, uh, you know, if it's, it's certainly better than, than to have an, a pluripotent stem cell hanging around. Um, but... Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, they, they, I think that you will never be able to generate as many uh, cells as with an IPS cell approach, but there are certain advantages. And you don't always need that many cells. I mean, you mentioned Parkinson's. You probably know better than I, you know, what the field thinks currently, how many neurons you would actually need for a functional benefit. I think it's in the range of a couple thousand, maybe. You know, um, Under half a million, or, so... Uh, what a couple hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. know that is that is not you know it's not so not so difficult to grow you know many million uh, uh, fibroblasts. Here's here's why I see a credi- an incredible advantage for uh, you know we had Malin Palmer on the show Marius last time and when we uh-huh. t- when we talk about in vivo reprogramming this is yep. where these techniques are are advantageous obviously because let's say you want to go so that. You know, you want to go into the brain and produce a cell type that has been that has died. You don't have to. Uh you know, you can go in directly, just convert the cells next door to the neuron it needs, and then leave. And you don't ever have to deal with the pluripotent derivative or a transplantation of new cells. And I think that's where in vivo, I'm sorry, that's where this induced technology direct has a really nice advantage as well. I agree. Um, I think it's um, very early days still. Sure. Um, we don't really know what the best non-neuronal brain cell type would be to convert. And whether, you know, converting cells there who probably have a job to do in the brain as well and turn it into neurons would also cause a problem. But, um, yeah, I agree. And again, using um, or sticking to the idea of Parkinson's disease, uh, there I think it, it would have really great potential because, again, you know, all you need is, a, is uh, you know, so relatively to the amount of brains or uh, neurons you have in your brain. You don't need that many dopamine neurons uh, that would project into the stratum to probably have a, a, a good impact on the clinical outcome. So I think 
let's transition now to the paper just so we have some time to really give it a uh, a, a fair discussion. This is a, a pu- recently published right after, uh, right or on or right after uh, Thanksgiving. Um, in Science Translational Medicine is a collaboration, I think, right, Marius, between the lab of Anthony Oro, is that correct? Yep. Um, and um, this is using pluripotent stem cells to model uh, a, a genetic disease, um, a disease which I have difficulty saying here. Um, a, a dystrophic epidermolosis bullosa. Did I do that right? <laughs> close. Uh, close. 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 Dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa. Epidermolysis, that's what let's, it is. Let's just call um, it Deb from now on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's Greek, and uh, if you translate it to English, it means uh, scarring, uh, blistering disease of the skin, essentially. So tell tell us about the disease a bit. Um, I, I was reading about it. It doesn't seem like it's a very comfortable situation, for sure. Sorry, I think uh, the connection was not good. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I said, can you tell us about the disease? I was reading a little bit about it, and sure. it seemed very uh, comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so it's um, a skin disease, uh, and it's a genetic disease. It's caused by um, the dystrophic form is caused by mutations in collagen seven gene, uh, and these collagen seven uh, protein bundles are really critical to um, sort of anchor the upper layer of the skin, which we call epidermis, with the lower level uh, or um, uh, lower layers of the skin, which we call dermis, and when these um, these anchoring fibrils are not um, working properly. If they're gone or, or dysfunctional, then the upper layer, the epidermis, is very, very loosely attached to the skin. And uh, in the most severe forms, you can literally peel off these 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 upper layers. And you can imagine, uh, you know, a newborn baby that just went through the birth um, um, uh, canal and oh. uh, had a lot of trauma there. Um, in, immediately, even though the skin is, you know, is fine, you're born with normal skin, but the, the, the moment you touch it, um, you sort of rub off the, the surface of the skin oh. and these wounds can never heal uh, because the skin cannot attach. And uh, so it, it really is it's a really horrible disease and it form, uh, it, it um, um, uh, you know, the, the, the children develop mitten deformities so that the fingers fuse because the skin is open, can't heal, right? Um, and and have um, in particular elbows and and um, knees and so forth. These these areas are horribly affected. And um, the ultimate problem, though, is that um, the skin itself, even though it can't, it always tries to heal. So there's a huge turnover of this of the epidermal stem cells, and eventually. Together with uh, you know lots of infl- infl- inflammation and inflammatory signals, um, the uh, the patients develop that is um, eventually the the uh, disease that kills these these uh, these patients. Jeez. So that is not a good situation all around. Um, no, it's luckily very rare. Um, it's only one in I think uh, half a million newborns, so it's luckily very rare. But once you have it, it's 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 really horrible but so there's a no mutation so i I would imagine and it's in the skin so i imagine a gene therapy situation might have been something explored at some point it is currently explored absolutely and uh, actually at stanford the same group that we um, collaborate with has already a phase one uh, clinical trial going on with an sort of ex vivo gene therapy approach so what they do is they take a skin biopsy 
from the patients, um, grow up their keratinocytes, so which are the cells that make the upper layer of the skin, and hit them with a virus for the correct gene, for collagen 7. And then um, use these cells to grow them up to uh, form epithelial sheets and graft these sheets onto, onto the lesions. And I don't know how many patients they have transplanted now. It's a couple, I think two or three, maybe more. And uh, things look very, very nice. Um, um, yeah, so um, the, that was actually one, one reason why we thought this would be a great disease to work with and show that IPS cell technology could in principle work sure. with the therapy because all the downstream applications of the clinical side is really work, well worked out. So sort of all we would have to do is to provide healthy keratinocytes and then give it to the dermatologists and they, they know exactly what they, what they have to do. They would grow the this, this sheets and know exactly how to transplant and how to, how to d- deliver the cell product. And so this is just ripe for autologous grafting. So taking the patient's diseased uh, skin tissue, correcting the mutation, and then uh, you also go back to an IPS stage as well, or is it IPS first, then correct? Absolutely, yeah. So IPS. So the uh, the you know when uh, when we, we uh, Shinya and 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 we started to publish these IPS cell papers, of course, one of the the big things was to. Uh, well, everybody thought about that now these IPSs, of course, should replace this what this sort of therapeutic circle that previously was called therapeutic cloning, right? The idea was to take a uh, somatic cell, do nuclear transfer to generate uh, nuclear transfer embryonic stem cell lines, which would have the exact same genetic background as the patient um, and then differentiate these embryonic stem cells into whatever you like to transplant and you wouldn't have to deal with, with immune rejection issues. And now the IPS cell... Technology is, uh, you know, was, was a beautiful shortcut to generate pluripotent stem cells directly. And of course, uh, you know, uh, people thought a lot about, you know, whether we could actually develop a therapy based based on on, on this approach. And um, so, also, uh, we thought about this. And when when I came here, I ran into these uh, uh, dermatologists here at, at Stanford, in particular Tony Oro. And um, so that's when I got to know this disease and the advantages that the skin has. So, so we thought, you know, if we really want to show uh, such a highly new experimental uh, um, therapy, um, then we rather stick to simple systems. And uh, even though I really love the brain and um, I'm really intrigued by its complicated brain diseases and potential ways to, to treat them with stem cells, but, you know, this the skin is much a simpler two-dimensional um, problem. And as I mm. said, the um, application is already worked out. Even in Parkinson's, where we have probably the most experience in transplanting even human patients, we still don't know really exactly where to put them, whether it's important to have them evenly distributed or whether we, it's okay to have them in a the bolus, in a cluster, right? It's, all these things are really not worked out at all. Whereas in skin, it's very clear. Uh, uh, and once we have the right cells, we we will have a therapy. So that, of course, is is a great advantage. And also that the skin is on the surface. It's accessible. If something goes wrong, you see it right away. Right. You don't need fancy MRI technology to find out whether there is a tumor growing or not. You know, you see it with your, with your naked eyes. And if something goes wrong, you can easily take it out as well. So there's a lot of advantages. So now you so, have uh, created banks for patients with this, with this current paper, correct? 
I'm not sure what you mean with bank. So, so we think that for this particular disease, which, which affects the skin, we probably will have to go autologous. So we literally will have to generate iPS cells for every patient because the skin is probably the highest um, or one of the highest um, immune surveyed organs that we have. It makes sense. The skin is essentially the barrier between us and our environment, which is full of bugs. Hmm. So um, anything you put into the skin is immediately rejected. And, and um, for example, when you transplant all- allogenic um, uh, thyroblasts, they are essentially gone in no time. You can, you can, wow. can see a, a, trace, wow. a trace of them left. Uh, so it's, 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 it's that uh, good. I never so, even thought about that, actually. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. Yeah. So even though you never know until you right, do right. it, but we think uh, we probably will have to stick to the autologous um, route and will not be able to use even closely matched like HLA-typed um, iPS cell banks, which probably will work for the other organs, but probably not for the skin. So I'm not sure what you meant with, with banks. We... Um, we have, of course, a long um, sort of manufacturing protocol. You have to first take the skin biopsy, grow them up, then have a little bank to just store the fibroblasts, right, and qualify them. Right. Then you have to turn these into iPS cells, and this is sort of our first, you know, bank if you want. And from there, you um, you want to correct the mutation. At the same time, we actually loop out the Yamanaka factors, but this is just a technical detail. Mm. So this, this is another bank. And then we have to convert them into stage, the genetically corrected IPS cell stage. And, but after the, after the character sites, we then produce these sheets, which would have eventually be grafted. So it's a very long um, process. It takes a little less than a year, we think, if everything goes well, because it involves gene targeting as well right. as a lot of characterization. And the differentiation protocols are not that, that rapid either. So... Um, we think it's um, something on the order of forty to probably fifty week uh, protocol. Marius, talk to talk to us about the differentiation protocol. Um, not not so much in detail of the protocol, but that the org, you know, that you're trying to make skin, which we know is very stratified, is very has unique layers. And I there's been a lot of literature I've seen um, just in reading coming out over the past couple of years about uh, being able to grow, you know, stratified skin or creating it from pluripotent cells or just better growth methods. Uh, just tell us a little, a little bit about that. Is it just the maturation that takes so long for the? Uh, I mean, you, 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 I imagine you you set up the keratinocyte identity fairly early in the protocols. It's just you have to let it mature and grow and stratify. Is that what happens? So it's actually quite interesting. <clears throat> when we started, there was really not much um, work done on this on this topic yet. Um, that that was one. Um, one main concern, actually, uh, you know, would we ever be able to derive functional keratinocytes from pluripotent stem cells? Um, and it turned out that it's actually fairly straightforward to generate um, this sort of simple embryonic surface ectoderm, which is sort of the non-neuronal surface ectoderm. Um, developmental, or for, from a developmental point, um, very similar in in in, uh, in in the stage of this sort of rosette type cells, right, that mm-hmm. would be the, the neuroectoderm that you are very familiar with, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but these cells, 
they would n- never last in a graft. So when you put such cells, even though they're non-neural ectoderm, but they are still too primitive to graft. They would never be able to compete with, with uh, you know, uh, surrounding keratinocytes. So the challenge really was to turn this simple epithelia into um, sort of definitive, de- definitive keratinocyte uh, epithelia, if you want. And that is what, what takes so long. It's, it's a, in a sense, a maturation step. I see, I see, thing. okay. Yeah. So it's not an actual maturation of the structure, but it's, I, it's, I, I get it, I understand. It's a, yeah, it's, it is a type of maturation, but not. It's a type of maturation of the cells, right? So you, you, it's not enough to have embryonic skin, so to say. You need, you need sort of adult-type skin. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now, and sorry, Yos, go ahead. Did you have a question? Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I, I was going to try and transition to his latest paper, but uh, why don't you ask your last question? Um, no, the, so so it is protracted. So you would, and you would have to use um, um, the patient's actual cells. But I guess the, uh, you know, like you said, the strategy that way. But but like you said, what's nice about this model is all you have to do is be able to produce the cell type because what it's already known what's going to happen after that. Uh, the approach has already been, that's, that's nice because like, if you don't have all those, like you said, those other wild card questions, once you generate the cell type, now what do we do? You know? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. and at this point we're not quite there yet to, to build entire organs and transplant med, uh, uh, medical doctors know what to do with them. Mm. <laughs> but we, 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 at this point we can only produce cells. So uh, real quick, because we're running a little late on time, and I just have to transition to your latest paper. It's been a great year for you, uh, 2014. Uh, the cell stem cell paper on uh, the RB gene, uh, this retinoblastoma okay. tumor gene. Uh, so I just have uh, just a conceptual question, because when I think about RB, it's like one of those few genes, tumor genes that I know that can actually make neurons go into division mode, which sort of never happens. So why would removing, so in this paper, you found that by removing RB, uh, it's able, you're able to reprogram more efficiently. And that's sort of the, the opposite of how I would see something that could cause division of neurons by removing this, this powerful factor. Uh, w- w- is that just the wrong way to think about something like this? this kind of gene or uh, what, what what's going on with RB, I guess is the question. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so this paper is about IPS cell reprogramming actually, yes. not, not yes. cell reprogramming. Yes. So um, actually, you know, it, in principle, it does make sense uh, that if you, um, if you either activate an oncogene or a suppressor tumor or suppressor gene, such as RB, you would uh, facilitate IPS cell reprogramming. And, uh, you know, many years ago, people have found P53 and Inc4A and so forth to, to facilitate IPS programming. So in that sense, it is, it is not surprising. What was surprising though, that unlike P53, um, the cell cycle is completely unchanged. So it's not that our loss of RB just speeds up the process, essentially. And that's why you facilitate IPS programming. Um, it's doing something else. And we have tried very hard to find out what it is doing. Mm. And it's a very, very interesting gene. As you mentioned, it's Im- implied in, in, you know, sort of other sort of, it's a little bit implied as an epigenetic regulator and, and uh, um, important to sort of um, stabilize cell lineages. And when, when you take it away, 
things become a little bit more fluid, but it's sort of very hard to get um, a handle on this on this problem. And we did, uh, uh, you know, we live in this beautiful age of DNA sequencing, so we could really get a very sort of holistic view of what is going on. And it looks like, this is of course very, very hard to prove, but it looks like everything we can do um, supports this this idea that the that RB uh, seems to um, suppress a you know large um, um, large component of a pluripotency network. So if you look at the single genes such as OX4 or OX2, um, when you lose RB, you see a little bit of induction, but very very tiny. Mm-hmm. So on a single gene by gene basis, the effects are very very small. But we think when you put all of this together, when you know you you, you take away this break. From from many many uh, pluripotency regulators, then you actually um, sum up the effect to a probably quite substantial effect, and uh, we think that's why um, it's just a little easier for the cells to to become pluripotent than when you have RB uh, yeah, present. That actually makes sense. I I think for some reason I had it opposite in my head, but now that you take me through it, I I could see it's sort of similar to P53, but that's interesting, the cell cycle effects. Yeah, yeah. Were the not cell there. cycle thing is very interesting. Yeah. I would never yeah. imagine that. So, yeah, that, that um, was a big surprise. Um, and I said, wow, uh, you know, we, we had this finding pretty, uh, quite a while ago, actually together with the P53 papers, but then it took so long to find out the mechanism, or like at least suggest a p- potential mechanism and have some data supporting it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, Yosef and I's problem with doing the show is that we can talk to the scientists for four hours, and we all <laughs> obviously can't do that. So we're we're gonna have to uh, uh, kind of transition from the the um, this part, and and because we're running, really running out of time here. So um, I think Marius, what we like to ask uh, of the the researchers and the scientists that come on, who are especially doing this work and so close to the clinic as this paper in you know science translational medicine shows uh, the real potential we asked them kind of yosef likes to call it the where's the beef question there's people out there that want to know where will stem cells have the most immediate impact what area of research so we like to ask for an opinion do you i mean now that i've learned about the skin i'm wondering if you would answer that i mean where do you see what area what disease what what, what kind of uh, organ if you will or something where you feel that stem cells might have the most immediate impact yeah so obviously i can talk about the skin uh, the best and uh, it's funny, had you asked me a couple of years ago, maybe even three years ago, I would have said, well, I have no idea. You know, this is a pie in the sky. It can take like, <laughs> you know, 10, 15, whatever, 50 years even. I don't know. But now we go the full circle from the patient biopsy to the therapeutic product. Um, so in principle, we showed it works. It can work. Uh, what we have, have to do now is to essentially convert the procedures that we have done in the in the in the lab into a GMP grade production mode, if you want. So we have to to f- make sure that all the components that we use are um, ex- very well defined. They're, not, they're, they're either not from animal sources, or if they are, they have to be defined and and tested for for animal viruses and so forth. So this is, of course, still an important and, and uh, labor-intensive task, but I don't think there's a principal problem anymore. You know, if you can do it in lab, you should be able to do it in, in the GMP facility as well with defined material. So that is the next hurdle, but I don't think it's a, it's a big hurdle. It, just, it, will, it will take time. It's a lot of work. 
uh, and it has to be doc- documented, and we have to write a gigantic long um, IND um, a, a, pr- a proposal to, to get F- FDA approval. So it's still a lot of work, but it, I don't see a fundamental biological issue anymore. So I think uh, it could, if we if we get the funding, all this stuff is very expensive. Sure. Um, uh, the FDA requires to do you toxicology studies, which is you know many many miles for a long observation time. So this is all very expensive. So if we get the funding, um, we could probably have a um, IND approved uh, for this disease in two to three years. I would think. Yeah, Excellent. that's all. That's awesome. Great. We're we're always happy when somebody says something besides RP. Uh, the uh, renal pigmental epithelia. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, one similarity about the eye and the skin is that you can see it. You know, you can look into the eye right. and you can assess and you can look at the skin and assess. And I know, you know, there's other things you need, but that that's a huge hurdle to pass because I think people feel much more comfortable just knowing, you know, okay, I can yep. look at my skin and see it's yep. <laughs> rather than it's in my brain and I hope nothing's going right. on. We just have to wait six months or a year. Yeah, I uh, agree. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Everybody, if you want to read the papers, uh, we're going to post them as we always do. So you can go to uh, stemcellpodcast.com. The links will be there, not the papers. You can go click the links and you can go download the papers. I suggest you go read them and you can find out more about Marius's work on his website at Stanford. Thanks again, Marius. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, Chris. All, All the right. best. Bye. Have, have a good one. Bye. Take care. Okay, Chris. Uh, what, what kind of RAM we got today? Uh, wh- which one we going to go with here? All right, dude. I think – so Yosef gets me these like topics, and uh, all of them are good. So I think we should do the plate, the cell plating rant. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you talk a little? Why don't you introduce your your hate for this? Because <laughs> right, so this truly sucks. So when you're passaging cells, particularly human embryonic stem cells, you want to uh, go. When we say passage, we mean uh, how would you explain passaging, Chris? It, it gets crowded, and then you need to dilute the crowd so that the cells don't become too bunched up together in the dish. So we call that passaging when uh, there's so many cells on the dish that you need to break them up and replate them onto a new dish. And we call that it's splitting or passaging. And uh, when you do this uh, with human ES cells, if you're not using like E8 media, uh, you put them onto embryonic, uh, mouse embryonic fibroblasts, uh, which are, if you look at our stem cell podcast uh, logo, that's those grayish cells that, not the red cells, which are the human cells. So uh, when you do that, um, you have to the colonies, the stem cell colonies apart and uh, put them onto a new dish at a dilution of what, what do you use? Like one to 10? Hey, everybody twice, does a little, yeah, bit a little bit different. I think basically like what it is, is that your dish can only hold so many cells and when they get full, you need to you need to re-put them on a new dish so they can regrow again. So that's really and, passaging. And yeah, and we'll say, what passage is your line? It's like, oh, passage 50, or like everybody wants the lowest passage, which is people can't get below 20, apparently. But uh, uh, everybody wants the youngest passage line, which, you know, once you passage, you could freeze some away for later and keep a low passage stock. But uh, as you're passaging, one thing that happens a lot is... Uh, the distribution of the cells, you want them to be evenly distributed across a a plate. And 
I, I, I don't know. It's, it's sometimes like, I don't know if my incubator is like on a tilt. Sometimes I'll get it. I'll, they'll all be on one side of the dish. And I don't know. It, this is the rant is how to evenly spread cells across a dish. It's, it's like really, it seems really trivial, but it's not, you know, the easiest thing to do. I was wondering, what's your method for doing it? Uh, do you do like the spin it around or I mean so it's like it's this is this is like I feel like it's like a magic trick like <laughs> you got to see people when they're doing it so they'll plate their cells and then they sh- some people like to go so your cells are floating, right? And you want to make sure they're evenly going to be distributed because if they all land on the left side, if a million land on the left and 200 land on the right, then it's obviously they're not going to grow. So people are doing like these, people insist on doing five counterclockwise swirls. <laughs> I like to do, I like to do the cross. I, I do the up, cross down, up, too. Up, down, left, right, left, right, left, yeah. right. One yeah. real circle and then I put it in. It's, you should see, it looks like people are like blessing their cells. Before. <laughs> it does. But even so, then you put it in the incubator and then your incubator shelves are warped. Yeah. So like you, you, yeah. you, if you have a, if someone has an incubator shelf that's completely level, it's like a coveted incubator. Yeah, totally. You know, totally. or like you, you try to like, you notice it's slanting a little bit to the right. So you, you, you like, you try to like, I used to prop it up with like a sterile pipette tip sometimes, or like to get it like perfectly level. It's really annoying <laughs> because great. once your things, once your uh, shelves are no longer level. You're done. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter how many times you circle the dish. That's true. Yeah, I, it is sort of like the Pope, or when the priest does the anointing with the the incense holder. It's sort of like that, where you're making a cross and anointing the cells before you put them in the dish to attach. You know, in the incubator to attach overnight. It's it's so funny. I like that analogy. But uh, yeah, man. And then if you do that perfectly, you've got the perfect technique. You're right. If you have a warped or you know off kilter, you know not leveled. Uh, dish uh, incubator it's gonna all wind up on one side and it's it and and we haven't even talked about air bubbles you ever get a little air bubble uh when you put it in there and like no cells will grow where the air bubble is so you have to get rid of air bubbles too there's these little details you got to worry about when you're passaging cells yeah, but there's the, those little details can mean the difference of differentiation or not without embryonic stem cells because you know the, these pluripotent cells, they don't like to be too crowded. And if you crowd them, sometimes they freak out. And yeah. so if, you're, if your dish is tilted and they all land on the left, or if you're differentiating and they're like the higher density on the left and not on the right, it can really screw up your, your differentiation. And it's, it's, a, it's like a really sour point. There's nothing worse than coming in the next day and looking down the microscope and seeing that like on the right side of your cell on the dish there's no cells on the left there's all the cells <laughs> yeah 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 there's... it's like the worst feeling cuz you're like great like okay now what do i do you can't do anything about it cuz you already played them and i don't understand how the incubators warp like the 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 shelves like shouldn't that be thought about before they make these things yeah yeah i didn't i didn't realize that they warp like that um cuz we have to autoclave them which is basically high heat putting them in an oven to make sure that they're sterilized periodically and uh i guess that process is what's causing the warping is is that what's going I, on i mean i i would assume so right yeah but yeah. um um like don't you think that they should have thought about that before they <laughs> created it i mean yeah, like dude like, yeah. if you're making things that are that cells need to sit on level and that can warp I mean, it's just, I mean, you got to see in the incubators, it's funny. If you open, if you go into a lab and open up an incubator, you'll see a lot of the time the dishes are all on one side or all on one, all on one, like there's three shelves. Everyone's got their dishes on one on shelf one because they know that, that the other shelves are a bit slanted. And, yeah. you, you know, once they land, it doesn't matter. 
Yeah. But that 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 point, the twenty four hours of landing, <laughs> if it's crooked, man, it's a disaster. So yeah. this is a this is a very valid rant, and I hope um, uh, if anyone's listening from companies or vendors or people out there making incubators. What's going on out there with your warping sh- shelves, man? Come on, yeah. help us out here, man. We're freaking out. We're swirling our stuff, crossing it. At not least helping. We, do you have one of those little levelers, the little air bubble that like lets you know where the the center of gravity and alignment is on your incubator? I I I, I don't have one anymore. We used to have one in mine, and I'm I kind of want to get one again because I've noticed some of my MEFs since we last autoclaved uh, are are plating on their bias towards one side and uh yeah i have one but it's on the top of the incubator so it only levels out like the actual incubator it doesn't level out the shelving inside the incubator so it's kind of oh, like yeah. it's kind of dubious like yeah. it, it'll tell you that your incubator is, is level but it won't tell you that your shelves and i don't think i don't know if you could put that on the shelves i don't know if it's sterile or if it won't melt but uh I don't know, man. It's just like this is a problem of the uh, of the cell biologist, the cell culturist. <laughs> Level levelness when plating cells is is it's a, it, it could be a disaster, and it's uh, it's well worthy of a rant, my friend, because yeah. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things that does piss you off if you if you go in the next day and your cells are all crooked. So yeah, anyway. So. Uh, that's our rant, and uh, we're sticking with it. And uh, yeah, man, that's it. Well, it was a good show, man. Good yeah, to talk to you. We'll yeah. uh, we'll be back, everybody, next uh, in the next couple weeks with episode uh, thirty-four. Moving on up in those numbers. Yeah, and uh, it's going to be our last one before Christmas and the holidays, correct? Yep, so, it'll be the last one for the holidays. Maybe I don't know, Yost. I don't know what we're going to do for the show. Maybe we'll do a little different something. Maybe we won't have a guest. Maybe me and you will just chat it up. Who knows? We'll yeah, maybe do a end of the year like uh, roundup of all the awesome papers that just kind of got left behind for 2014 yeah that's so, a good uh, idea so everybody send us your if you got any ideas or if you got any uh, papers you want us to to talk about in more detail that you like this year send them over to us uh stem cell podcast gmail.com um yos my man why don't you close it down all right buddy i'll talk to you all later right. have all a right, good bye. one